Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. Today's podcast features an interview with Marla Orenstein, Director of the Natural Resources Centre at the Canada West Foundation, and Brendan Cook, Policy Analyst with the Canada West Foundation, about their recent report on electricity systems in Western Canada. But before we dive into that, I'll have a quick discussion with CGI fellow and Energy Security Forum Manager Joe Kalnan about the news stories affecting global energy security this week. How are things with you, Joe? Oh, I'm doing well, Kelly. Uh, you know, uh, this last weekend, I uh, watched both the uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer movies. So, uh, I oh, got you went the to the op- you went to the Oppenheimer, eh? Yes, I did. Yeah, uh, very interesting movie. I, I'd say that uh, I'm a little bit more on the Oppenheimer side of things. Although I, I did appreciate Barbie; it's a very funny movie, and I, I think people should watch both of them. Uh, but uh, Oppenheimer definitely got me in back to worrying about nuclear annihilation. I was reading this morning that it's grossed two hundred million dollars the first four days it was out. Eh? I'm, I'm I'm excited to see it too. But uh, we've been able to avoid that for uh, seventy <laughs> years. Um, so what's in the news that might be heading us towards some sort of <laughs> arm, any sort of Armageddon? Is there anything out there that's looking like that? Well, some of these other stories might be, but our first story, uh, I really hope will not, because I think it would be uh, it would be a very um, strange end to human civilization. Uh, first up, let's quickly go over Canada's new guidelines for eliminating, uh, quote, inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. So uh, if you go back to 2009... Uh, in a meeting of the G20, there was an agreement to, quote, phase out and rationalize inefficient fossil fuel subsidies while providing targeted support for the poorest. Uh, at the time, eliminating these subsidies was low-hanging fruit for the nascent response to climate change. Since fossil fuel subsidies come at a direct cost to governments, their elimination was thought to be relatively easy. Uh, compared to most other uh, aspects of climate change uh, mitigation. However, like many communiques, very little came of the G20 statement as the political leaders of most countries continued to provide subsidies to buy popular support and enrich pet industries. The November 2021 Glasgow Climate Pact following the COP26 Climate Conference, however, revisited this ambition of the G20 communique, repeating the call to, quote, Uh, phase out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies while providing targeted support to the poorest and most vulnerable in line with national circumstances and recognizing the need for support towards a just transition. Uh, These caveats were very handy in 2022. The International Energy Agency estimates that 2022 saw the largest spending on fossil fuel consumption subsidies in history as European governments spent around 350 billion US dollars to shield citizens from the energy crisis. Of course, this support was not targeted by any means, with both poor and wealthy Europeans receiving huge subsidies for energy consumption. In particular, the UK, the host of COP26, heavily embraced these subsidies with massive state support for energy consumption. Canada, however, has maintained its commitment to phase out uh, inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, And pursuant to this, the federal government released guidelines for their elimination earlier this week. You know, when I first saw this story yesterday morning, Joe, and a picture of Guibo, the minister, I'm thinking, oh, this will be nice. I'm bounced in Montreal, of course, not anywhere near where energy is is, uh, part of the story. Um, But when I look at it and um, I looked at other analysts' view of this, um, (laughs) I think it's pretty you know, overall general, generally neutral about the energy sector. Um, and that's led lots of environmental groups to be totally dissatisfied with these guidelines due to several important constraints that, you know, in economic and uh, fiscal reality needed to stay there. First, most important, these guidelines only apply to federal departments, agencies and crown corporations, since resources and energy are primarily the domain of provinces, many of the subsidies flagged by environmental groups are completely outside the scope of the federal government. More importantly, and furthermore, the guidelines exempt subsidies for several activities which many environmental groups consider suspect, such as activities which cause net greenhouse gas emissions reductions or which provide an essential energy service in a remote community. 
like you're going to quit using diesel fuel in the north is that what's going to no they're not um importantly someday maybe you know hopefully we can get to a point where compressed natural gas or lpg or enough renewables are available or not you know but hey we're not even close to there so event importantly the federal government has kept their realist hat on certain aspects but it's also important to note that the net GHG emissions reductions exemptions include net emissions reductions not only in Canada and this is really important Joe I think that I'm glad you targeted this as part of the discussion for us today but also internationally in the alignment with article 6 of the Paris agreement which could open the door for many interesting questions about what emissions offsets may be encouraged for international trade but this has been a big uh, hurdle for a lot of people to understand about you know why do we get why do our emissions get double counted that's really something that needs to be addressed on a global basis because guess what emissions don't know where the borders are the guidelines also state that subsidies can support abated production processes or projects that have a credible plan to achieve achieve net zero by 2030 meaning carbon capture and storage in the oil and gas sector but exempting carbon capture for in, for uh the purpose of enhanced oil recovery, which is purely for political reasons. Um, and we should do a show on that, Joe, you know, the EOR part of the, of the environmental rules, because it's really, a, um, I, I really think it's important that people understand that, um, you know, conventional oil and gas isn't going away. And uh, uh, I think it would be a great topic to expand on a bit, but that's for another time. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, more importantly, or most importantly, these guidelines only apply to measures which provide a, quote, disproportionate benefit, unquote, to the fossil fuel sector, meaning measures which are either directly targeted at the fossil fuel sector or measures which provide more than 10% of their benefits to the fossil fuel sector, meaning that various generic subsidies and tax breaks for businesses will not apply. Finally, uh, in these guidelines is still to be seen with a large amount of funding through agencies such as Export Development Canada and the Canada Infrastructure Bank, as well as tax measures like the Carbon Capture Investment Tax Credit will likely be affected. This may also impact the Trans Mountain Pipeline, the fully government-owned pipeline project, which has faced significant financing challenges. Why do you think that, Joe? What makes you think that this could impact the Trans Mountain Pipeline? Well, because I feel like these uh, guidelines might restrict that. I'm not saying that they will, but, um, you know, based on the interpretation of these guidelines by federal agencies, uh, I think the federal government has already said that it's not going to provide any more direct support to the Trans Mountain Pipeline project. But uh, it's to be seen how this might affect, uh, you know, uh, that project going forward. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a lot of, I think it's a lot of posturing and political capital build up by the for the federal government but that's just my opinion what else is going on let's move let's go somewhere else in the world besides canada which is rather boring yeah uh next up let's move to a little bit more dramatic uh story i'd like to talk about an issue that's been brewing for some time which is the growing tension in the persian gulf between the united states and iran a uh, Greek-owned Suez Max tanker named the Suez Rajan is currently anchored off of Galveston, Texas, in the U.S. Gulf Coast with a cargo of 800,000 barrels of crude oil. In April, the United States Department of Homeland Security ordered the Greek owner to sail the tanker to Texas from Singapore, where it had been in legal limbo for a year while Homeland Security and the Treasury Department wrangled over uh, the enforcement of the sanctions of sanctions on Iran. Uh, the oil, by the way, is Iranian oil, and uh, the U.S. government has accused the uh, ship owner of transiting this uh, and breaking uh, U.S. sanctions. The US, United States is now trying to seize the oil itself. However, many of the companies which normally would have handled the oil also operate in the Persian Gulf and are therefore nervous about assisting the U.S. government in the seizure. This is a bit of a powder keg, you know, days after the United States seized the Suez Rajan, Iran's Navy seized the Advantage Suite, another Suez Max tanker in the Gulf of Oman. In response, uh, the U.S. Navy increased the rotation of ships and aircraft patrolling the Strait of Hormuz in May. On 20 July, 
Iran warned that any oil company which assisted in unloading the oil from the Suez region would face retaliation from the Iranian Navy. Earlier in July, Iran attempted to seize an additional two tankers, though these attempts were deterred by the U.S. guided missile destroyer USS McFall. Nevertheless, uh, the United States has continued to build up forces in the region, sending an additional destroyer alongside uh, a couple of squadrons of F-35s and F-16s to provide greater deterrence against Iranian sanctions in the Gulf. The Suez Rajan, however, remains loaded at uh, anchor in the U.S. Gulf Coast, underlining the complex relationship between sanctions, global security, and commercial activities of the global energy system. Great story, Joe. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, ima just imagine the cost of that tanker sitting there for weeks on end. The, the oil alone, the value of it, plus the tanker's cost per day, the uh, crew members of that tanker are getting rather anxious. Yeah, I'm sure that this is this is a real deterrence for uh, shipping companies picking up cargoes of Iranian oil. But, uh, you know, there's also the question of, you know, the deterrence that Iran is able to exert against uh, shipping companies from helping out U.S. sanctions, because these companies have to operate in the Persian Gulf, and there's only so much the U.S. can do to deter Iranian actions when, you know, that region of the world is very much Iran's backyard. Yes. Yeah, they're still a major player, no matter what sanctions are there. What else? Do you, you got anything else, Joel? Yeah, last up, let's uh, quickly cover a story about uh, Vital Materials Corporation and the complexities of minor metals. So this is a really interesting thing that I think has come out of some recent events. So a couple of weeks ago, China instituted controls on the export of gallium and germanium, two minor metals with very small markets, but an outsized effect on several key technology use cases. Uh, we've talked about these uh, metals before, and uh, you know I, I encourage people to look up what they're used for. Uh, China dominates the refining and therefore the supply of these metals. In particular, a single Chinese metals refining company, Vital Materials, dominates the market for many minor metals, as described in a recent Bloomberg article. To uh, understand the market dynamics of minor metals, it's important to understand that mining companies are not targeting their production. Gallium, for example, is largely produced as a byproduct of bauxite, the primary aluminum ore, and germanium is mostly a byproduct of zinc. These things are really crucial, though, and vital is a great term. Mining companies generally produce these materials as a side effect of aluminum and zinc, which are, you know, much more common minerals. No company could make money on gallium or germanium alone. Um, and it leads to markets where supply is extremely dislocated from demand and characterized by wild price swings. Vital Materials founder, Zhu Shihi, built the company by scooping up stocks when other companies went bankrupt and providing firmness to the market on upswings. It's, I think it's, more, it's important to think about this in the future and the importance of Vital Materials. But one lesson that comes from this is important. As much as some Chinese sectoral dominance may be due to state support, China's private sector plays a major role too. Joe, these are great stories, all three of them. Uh, thanks for bringing this stuff together for us. Yeah, not a problem, Kelly. And uh, to our listeners, I just want to restate my normal message. Uh, if you're interested in these stories, please subscribe to our newsletter on our website, and you can get them right into your inbox every Wednesday. Great, Joe. Let's switch over our, to our conversation with Marla and Brendan. For today's interview recorded July 18, 2023, we discussed the electricity systems of Western Canada the outlook for reducing emissions, and implications for Canadian industrial development and trade, as explored in a recent report from the Canada West Foundation, titled Electrically, Electric, Electricity Systems Across Western Canada, a Landscape Analysis. Really pleased to have discussed with this with me from Calgary are Marla Orenstein and Brendan Cook. Marla is Director of the Natural Resources Centre at the Canada West Foundation. She's the Ambassador for the Energy Futures Lab, a member of the Task Force on Major Project Development and Regulatory Excellence at the Business Council of Alberta, and a member of the Alberta Advisory Council at Foresight Canada. Brendan is a Senior Policy Analyst for the Natural Resources Centre at the Canada West Foundation, has a Master's of Science in Sustainable Energy Development, and a Bachelor of Commerce in Energy Management, both from the University of Calgary. In past roles, Brendan, ha Brendan has managed major capital projects in the telecommunication and energy industries. We don't usually have two people on the podcast, but given the topic, I'm really glad that both here are with me today. Thanks so much, Kelly. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, 
you know, I, I, I'm going to say that a lot of people that listen to my podcast will know what the Canada West Foundation, but we have a lot of uh, listeners in Eastern Canada, um, in the National Capital Region, Toronto, and we have a fair number of international listeners. listeners. So Marla, could you please tell us what the Canada West Foundation is? Yeah, uh, thanks for the opportunity, Kelly. People hear the word foundation, they assume that we're an organization that gives away money, but that is not us. Um, we're a, a public policy think tank that focuses on Western Canada. So we're a, a nonpartisan and independent source of practical information and insight for governments at a provincial and a federal level so to help them craft better public policy. Right on. You're, you're like us, only it's more of a focus on, on Western Canada. than Exactly. That. It's been around for quite some time, right? A little over 50 years. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's evolved nice? during that time. I know that that a lot of people associate it with fairly right-wing thinking, but I think we left that behind decades ago. Yeah, it was founded differently. And mm -hmm. uh, um, it, it certainly has a much broader uh, perspective. So you guys just published a report, uh, and I, I'll call it again, called Electricity Systems Across Western Canada, a Landscape Analysis. What is it and why did you guys do it? Uh, well, this, this report is something that was originally intended to be about four pages and got out of control. Of course uh, and wound up that's what, that's what public pages. policy analysts do, right? That's exactly. We find rabbit holes and we, we, we take them to their terminal points. Um, there's a lot of stuff happening in electricity these days around Canada, as you know. Everybody knows that, that we need to grow the amount of electricity that is going to be produced as everything is electrifying in homes and buildings and transport and industry. So we're going to need more electricity in the future. And we, at the same time, need to make it uh, decarbonize electricity, both the new stuff and the existing stuff. And we also have to maintain uh, reliability and affordability across the grid. Super important things to do. And there's a lot of public policy decisions to be made. When we started looking into the policy that was being crafted, whether it's the federal clean electricity regulations, which I'm sure we'll come back to, or, or regulations on a on policy on a provincial level, we discovered that there was basic information that we didn't have at our fingertips about how the electricity sector worked. And we needed to put this together so that we could not, uh, we, we could avoid the trap of just making statements that sounded great, but weren't actually implementable. So we started putting together all the facts about the electricity sector across the four Western provinces on a province by province basis, but where you could compare them. So everything from how is the sector structured to what's the power resource mix, to what are the GHG emissions profiles of each, what's demand and supply, how are they approaching grid modernization initiatives, how does each system make its money, um, because that, that unlocks what they are and aren't able to do, um, what's the cost to consumers, sort of the soup to nuts of how does each of the sectors work. So this isn't a recommendations report, it's more like a big book of facts and implications. So how you know how how are the systems set up and what does that mean as we start to move forward into that future that I talked about before that has more electricity is decarbonized and it's still reliable and affordable so so that's what we've created and we're hoping it's a resource for for policymakers for other think tanks for academics for other thinkers anyone who's trying to work with the sector and say let's let's move forward into the future um, what's it actually going to take. You know, electricity is so, we're so fortunate, in, especially in Alberta, and, and, and I grew up in Saskatchewan, um, you know, the times that we don't have power are, are uh, very few and far between, even compared to mm -hmm. British Columbia, like, a, you know, I, whatever. Um, but, Brendan, let's, find, let's talk about what you found. Like, the, there's some genuine, definite differences in how the war Western province structure power, and, and they have diff, different implications for the for the the consumer or user, don't they? Like, could you could you explain? I don't think people will quite know this. Yeah, for sure. So, so this is kind of where our report starts. Is is how how are the different provinces structured? Who are the major players? Um, and and kind of where how are they regulated? And so so that's kind of how I break down in terms of structure of the provinces where those key differences are. Kind of the two main areas being how are they regulated and and who are the big players in the industry? Um, and the two do tend to go hand in hand. So. You've got a group, you know, you've got BC, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, um, who are fairly similar in the way that they're structured. Uh, they are fully regulated, meaning that there's a, a utility regulator that um, oversees uh, actions throughout all four uh, utility functions. Um, and so those utility functions being the generation of power, the transmission of power, um, the local distribution, and then the final retail sale to, to the end customer. And so 
in those three provinces, you have regulation end to end within the sector. And you also have the presence of um, a large vertically integrated crown corporation that, that acts as the primary utility within the province. Um, to slightly differing degrees, depending on which province you're looking at, um, you know, BC. But also generally, has you could, BC. generally the, the the three provinces are crown corporate. They're the they're, they're basically run by the crown corps. The crown corps run all of the utility. They are the the planners uh, for the grid. They're the system operators, um, and there's regulation through and through. And then you've got Alberta, which sits out in contrast, and um, where we have no government ownership uh, within our our electricity system. It's all run by private corporations, um, and we have a we have regulation in our, our transmission and distribution uh, functions, but we have a deregulated generation grid. Um, and, and so our generation grid operates on a competitive basis instead of through long-term power purchase agreements um, and, and fixed pricing. And so in terms of what that really means, I mean, that, that flows through and it, it really impacts when we're talking about regulation, how, how it's regulated and, and where the policies are coming from, it really impacts everything from um, you know, where, where investments are being made in the, in the grid, what kind of resources are being made, what kind of policies are being passed. But, but I think it really, it really comes down to how investment can be put into the generation market in the different provinces. And so when we look at those fully regulated provinces of uh, BC, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan, private investment in the generation market is rare. Um, or, or at least not the norm. And, and when it does happen, it, it's through a call for power from that major crown corporation utility. And so those calls for power come with a lot of strict uh, stipulations around where that should be located, what, what the source of that power should be, what the size of those, those uh, facilities should be. Um, whereas when you look at Alberta, it's, it's very open. Um, there's a lot of opportunities for new entrants. It's a competitive market. If you have a, a power plant that you think can compete on the market, you're welcome to invest. Um, and so what that's done really over the past few years is enabled a, a massive growth in renewables within Alberta. Yeah, I was and, just going to ask, like, that sounds like a lot better market for renewables than trying to deal with crown corporations. And I'm not saying they're wrong, like I, but the regulatory, the sort of check all the boxes of dealing with a, with a, with a, with a, something from the government relative to a private market seems to me like, you know, I, as I said to you guys earlier, I spent I came back from Saskatchewan yesterday, and there's a there's some giant wind project wind projects in Alberta currently being constructed, and a, a solar a solar farm at Hannah that I'd never seen before. Like, I, so sorry, I'm getting a little, I, I, but I don't think I'm off topic. This is an important part no. of the future of the discussion of where the power comes from, right? It, it absolutely is, and and I think one of the one of the big driving forces be, behind you know all all of these wind and solar farms that we're we're seeing pop up rapidly in Alberta um, is is the kind of advent of these corporate uh, power purchase agreements that we've seen. And so because of the competitive market, because of the 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 openness of the Alberta generation market, um, companies who aren't even involved as utilities, uh, your Amazons, Microsofts, uh, you know, Budweiser even um, are even are able to come into the market, invest in some of these uh, renewable sol solar projects or wind projects, and they they're able to essentially uh, take the renewable attributes of that power for themselves, which helps them to decarbonize their operations. But at the same time, it offers a lot of uh, investment stability for, for those operations and enables them to get financed a lot quicker and built a lot quicker. Um, and so that is a, a major competitive advantage right now in Alberta in terms of getting uh, renewable projects built. So um, I'm gonna go a little bit off script you guys. Um, and, I, and both of you, please. Well, feel free to jump in here. Um, could you give us a like a, like just the, the thumbnail sketch, the Coles notes of where power comes from in each province, like the 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 source of source of the electricity, um, because it's all it's very very different, and uh, I think it's important for people to understand where Saskatchewan's at, Manitoba and BC are kind of the same, and Alberta is a mix of all of it. So, Marlo or Brendan, yeah. who you, you just tell us what what's the how is it generated? Yeah, so I think the, the the easiest way to break up those four provinces is you've got BC and Manitoba as big hydro provinces. They get, you know, the vast majority of their their electricity from large hydro dams, um, and so so hydro is king in those provinces. And then you've got Alberta and Saskatchewan, where historically those have been fossil fuel provinces. Uh, started as coal, there's been a transition towards natural gas, 
Uh, Alberta will be off of coal by the end of this year. Uh, Saskatchewan uh, has a goal of have it being off of coal uh, by 2030. Um, and so the, the, that's kind of the breakdown is, is fossil fuels versus hydro. And then of course, as I mentioned in Alberta, we've had uh, a pretty rapid growth of, of solar and wind as well that's starting to make up a, a decent chunk of our grid, I believe provided um, just over 14% of the power uh, in Alberta last year. Yeah, the thing I'd add to that as well is is that there's implications both ways for what GHG emissions are. It's a different set of challenges. So you look at at Alberta and Saskatchewan, where, as Brennan just said, first it was coal, now it's natural gas. Both of these are emitting sources. And the difficulty is how do you take this generation that we've got and reduce emissions on it? And some of the answer will be solar and wind, and some of the answer might be carbon capture or some other things. But that's the challenge facing Alberta and Saskatchewan. When you look at BC and Manitoba, they don't have that challenge because hydro is non-emitting. Their problem is that they have to grow to meet this this increasing demand. There's not going to be any more big hydro dams. That's done. The day of the big hydro dam is done. So the question for them is how do they they add extra capacity um, while also still being, you know, remaining uh, low emissions, but where are they going to get it from? So it's a, a different set of challenges for each of them. And, and they don't have the, the wind and solar resources necessarily. No, I was just going to say, there's too many trees either. and lakes. Like, it's yeah. just not ge- geographic. Ge- geographically, it's not set up for solar and wind. And that's a generalization. You get down into the lower plains in southeast Manitoba, okay. But, you know, where you, you got to get the power to where the people are, too. Like, you know, so it, there's some challenges. Now, having said that, and I'm going into my next question, like, as a... It, Talking existentially as a whole, the four provinces generate most of the time more power than they use. So exports are a, are a valuable commodity in in all these places. And and uh, your report mentioned some of the trade-offs which net exporters have to face in the future with respect to balancing their uh, revenues and meeting local demand, as I just said. And and uh, be, but at the same time, for that for the consumer. Um, the citizen in a, where the crown is is, is his uh, overseer, electricity uh, export can be very lucrative. Uh, this could be particularly impactful for BC as as you as we discussed before we came on the air, um, where the major projects like the LNG uh, facility are expected to require large amounts of power. Both of you, could you how, how do you how do the provinces navigate this trade-off uh, when? like for exports, especially in British Columbia and Manitoba, while it still has excess power. Because I know Manitoba yeah. exports power to North Dakota and, and uh, uh, Minnesota. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, as you mentioned, so, so BC and, and Manitoba are net exporters on an annual basis. Generally, um, Alberta is a, a slight importer of electricity and, and Saskatchewan's kind of status quo. So this really applies mainly to, to BC and Manitoba. Um, in terms of how they're going to deal with that, I think uh, a lot of that kind of remains to be seen still. Um, both provinces are still generating excess power right now, although we've seen in, in recent forecasts from, from BC Hydro that that's um, likely to only last a few more years. Um, so we can, we can see BC Hydro uh, making new calls for power. Um, from independent power producers, so they're they're looking to scale up domestically for sure. Um, but I think what's really going to end up making deciding how they how they do this is is a few different things. One being the pace of domestic uh, demand growth. So as you mentioned, depending on where the LNG industry in BC goes, will really impact how much additional power the province needs. Um, things like the pace of electrification of transportation as well. So that'll, I, that will really dictate the time frame that they have uh, to deal with this. And then some of the other things that I think are going to change um, their, their activities around importing and exporting are what are prices for power in the U.S. going to look like in the near future? So with the, the Inflation Reduction Act that went into the, in through the U.S. last year, there's a lot of incentives for investing in renewables. And I think we can expect to see uh, some of those intermittent renewables uh, producing power for lower costs than, than have been seen in the U.S. recently. Uh, and so if the U.S. is generating power at a lower cost, it might not want to import quite as much clean power from, from BC and Manitoba. And so that's something that they're going to have to deal with as well, is, is what, what does that look like? Um, and then I think finally, the, the next thing will be, what's their ability to cooperate with their, their neighboring jurisdictions? Because there is some ad, ad advantages to a the hydro resources that they have 
in terms of being able to essentially store power um, and be able to dispatch that when they need to. Um, but also Canada has generally uh, a peak in power uh, demand in the winter months when, when we require additional uh, electricity and, and energy for heating um, and, and that kind of thing. Whereas south of the border, especially if you look to California where BC exports a lot of power, they have the opposite. Their, their demand peaks in the summer when um, there's huge demands for, for air conditioning and, and that sort of thing. And so if, if there's policies put in place that enable cooperation between those jurisdictions, I think the you know, net exports might be reduced, but there, there can be a beneficial agreement there in terms of, of uh, reducing the need for additional capacity domestically by offsetting each other's um, seasonal seasonal demand. Now, unfortunately, um, I think for BC, they've got a policy in place right now where they need to be energy self-sufficient. Uh, and so that policy really limits how much they're able to rely on their neighbors uh, to, to meet their peaks in demand. And so I think where Manitoba might have some flexibility on that, BC is likely going to be kind of handcuffed to uh, building out additional supply domestically. Marla, is there anything you'd like to add about this regarding uh, trade-offs with with the Americans and, and sources of discontent that could happen. Like I, this is, this is a bit of a, a Gordian knot to me. Like I, I've got a, yeah, how do you untie some of these things when you've got in these cross-border jurisdictions? Yeah, no, it, it, that's a really good way to describe it, Kelly. Brendan was pretty comprehensive in his answer there, but um, as we know, there's both long-term contracts and then short-term or, or more free flow of electricity between um, BC and, Man and Manitoba and the states to the south of them. Uh, and a long-term contract is a long-term contract. They're locked in. But for the, you know, as long-term contracts expire and on a more short-term basis, it's entirely possible that those two provinces decide, well, we're not going to export as much south of the border because we either want it to satisfy our own demand within our province, um, which, again, it's a helpful way, you know, why not use the electricity that you've got rather than generating new stuff and, and all the headaches that that has. It will increase prices domestically since this lucrative source of exports isn't there anymore. But at the same time, it can also be an, an incentive if they're trying to draw industry to come to the province and say, hey, we've got this, this uh, zero emissions low cost electricity for you to use. Um, so it is, uh, there's a lot of competing things that they have to balance off when they're trying to consider how much to export and how much not. One of the interesting things that came up when we wrote this report, and I didn't realize before, and it, it, it's it implied here as well, is um, that BC engages in arbitrage between Alberta and the United States. So they they are a sort of a pass through for electricity. They will buy electricity from Alberta's markets when the Alberta market is cheap, and then they will sell it at a higher cost to the U.S. And so it's not just a question of uh, electricity always goes in one direction from El from British Columbia. They produce it and ship it south. Um, they're sending it all over the place. They'll send some back to Alberta. They'll send it down to the states. They'll buy it from Alberta. They'll they'll do whatever is best from a market perspective, almost like again trading on stock markets. Um, they'll find it and they'll they'll use it to to create a bit of a cash cow. Um, so that has implications not just for the states but for Alberta in the future as well. When we're looking at interties and whether it's smart to build interties with British Columbia or not. Uh, British Columbia will be more than happy to, to purchase cheap power from Alberta. Will they be happy to use more interties to sell it back to Alberta? Well, that depends on how much Alberta is willing to pay as opposed to a U.S. customer. Um, so it's not just a question of you build it and that's it. We're, we're home free in Alberta for, for electricity for a while. No, that, those are interesting points and it, it ties into the next thing I wanted to ask you guys. Okay, One of the interesting parts of the report in Table 4 outlines the cross-province comparison of, of prices in last year, 2022. It's striking how much more expensive electricity is in Alberta compared to BC, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. Residential consumers in BC, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, or sorry, residential consumers in BC, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba were charged uh, 114, 165, and 102 respectively for a megawatt hour, while Albertans were paying 190 per megawatt hour. Could you, Brendan, could you give us an overview of why electricity is so much more expensive in Alberta than in the other provinces? Like I, I it's a bit baffling for a, a consumer. I, I think I have an idea, but um, 
feel yeah. free to so, so, wax on here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I think it, it's a, a few of the things we've already talked about and a, a few other things as well. So um, the, the first thing is resource mix. So as we talked about BC and Manitoba who have the, you know, by far the lowest prices in that list are the major hydro provinces. And so um, big hydro dams are, are great at producing really low cost power. So that's that's kind of the first uh, first and foremost. That's that's kind of the biggest impact. Um, but there's a few other things too in that resource mix as well. Um, you know, we talked about how Alberta and Saskatchewan are beginning to rely on natural gas more. Uh, we've had very volatile natural gas markets over the past couple of years as well, and so those input costs have resulted in in increased costs of electricity as well. Um, in those. Uh, Provinces that have the, those crown corporations that we discussed, uh, they essentially get access to government-backed funding, um, and so they do have lower costs of, of investment than a private organization likely would. So that helps to bring down prices in those in those jurisdictions. Um, and then we've got exports. So as we discussed uh, as well, those exports uh, essentially provide a um, a bit of a subsidy to to domestic uh, consumers. So when when BC and Manitoba are able to earn uh, revenue through exporting to the U.S., they can use that revenue to offset their their uh, revenue requirements domestically, and so that has been a, a method for them to keep prices low in their province for for domestic customers. Um, however, I the the last thing too, which which is uh, Alberta specific um, and has resulted in in quite a peak in in electricity prices over the past couple of years here as well, uh, is is some changes in bidding behaviors. So. Um, as we mentioned, Alberta has a deregulated competitive market, and so the way that that works is generators will offer their uh, electricity to the power pool in Alberta for a specific price um, during a specific hour. And so in Alberta, we are kind of at the, at the whim of, of, of what those uh, big generators decide to offer their power for. And we've, we've seen uh, offering behaviors over the past couple of years where... Uh, these, these large power companies are beginning to um, supply power at a cost that really has increased their, their margin um, that they're earning on that more so than what we had seen in the past. And some of that has to do with some ex expiration of, of long-term power purchase agreements that Alberta had up until the past couple of years that, that kind of, um, I guess, diluted the market power of, of some of the big generating companies. And so um, a big chunk of where, where the increase in Alberta has come from recently is just the way that the, uh, the competitive market is behaving. And so there's, there's uh, some folks who, who do think with the increase in, in renewables and, and more of these uh, distributed energy project, projects and more basically more players in the market, um, we can see maybe a reduction in that, uh, the, the way that those companies are bidding and, and see some prices come down. So I'm going right off the grid here, literally. <laughs> I'm going way outside the envelope. But um, I'm a, anybody that knows me hardly consider I'm a socialist. But it seems to me that there is an avenue for collusion here. Is it like how's that managed? Like because it, it's against the law. So how how is that managed by the, the province that has private power? And I'm I'm out of the report. I'm I'm asking political. I'm asking experts about. That have looked at these kinds of things, you know, and it, so you take in now Manitoba, Saskatchewan, uh, and BC, you get what you get. The, the, the zero cost of capital, it's a crown corporation, and it's re reflected in my bill. In Alberta, you got four or five, maybe six major, not counting renew new renewables companies, but produce all the power, and two or three private companies like Altalink that produce to do all the grid work, Fortis, you know. Like I'm, this makes me a bit nervous because it kind of smells. Am I way out of, am I way out of face here or? Well, so, so when we talk about the, the grid work specifically, so Alberta does have a, a regulated uh, transmission and distribution um, Okay, they uh, have to work market. inside and an envelope so, of what they can charge. Yeah, and so, and so the way it works in Alberta is essentially those, those, they're private corporations, but they're given a regional monopoly. So, you know, NMAX provides, the services for Calgary, Epcor right. provides services for Edmonton, and and there's you know where where uh, Transalta fits in, and and some of the others as well, and like Atco, um, they get a chunk basically, but within what they're allowed to charge is regulated by by the regulator, um, and then so they have they have tariffs that they must abide by, and and those are all equivalent across the board, um, where 
where it, it differs is in, in the generation market. So as you mentioned, there are a few big companies that provide a lot of the generation. Um, and so they do have some market control. I would say less, less around collusion between companies, but more around the fact that they just control so much of the market um, that they're, they're essentially bidding against their own resources at times. And so um, they can definitely use that to, uh, to influence what, they're, what kind of returns they're, they're expecting to get on those assets. So uh, in terms of how we get around that, I think it really is just in terms of in, uh, a case of needing to add some more diversity to, to the, the generation market. Marla, is there anything you'd like to add? Like, I, 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 don't get me wrong. I, 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 you know, I'm being kind of facetious about collusion, but you know, when you've only got a few players and uh, and you bring in climate and emissions mm -hmm. and all the other avenues available for uh, other sources of power, it gets complicated. Yeah, it, it certainly does. There's there's different benefits to both systems. The ones with the Crown Corporation, you know, as you brought out, you have more stability in pricing. You have uh, zero cost capital that's available to them. You have a lot of advantages in terms of being able to deliver a system to consumers that is reliable and it's predictable in terms of its pricing and its lower cost. And that any profits that come in can be returned back to the consumers as opposed to corporations. Um, you don't have that in Alberta. You have the opposite of that, of that system. And we've discussed some of the downsides, the upsides being that it has more flexibility to... Um, to, to, for example, grow out the wind and solar um, in ways that are much larger and more organic and more innovative than uh, what can happen under a crown. So, you know, is it a question of pick your poison or pick your advantage? Or uh, I'm not quite sure what the right phrase is there, but it's, you know, it's definitely different systems that because of how they're structured, devolve very differently down to the consumer. It's great. I, I, and I'm, I'm dragging this out, but or I, I've got off into the rabbit hole, as you guys discussed, which is easy to do. These are complicated issues mm -hmm. because people just want to turn the switch on, right? Yep. They, that, yeah. <laughs> that's, we live in a place that's been, we're so fortunate to have been like this all our lives. When you look at other jurisdictions that, that can't, we've had lots of guests on here that come from jurisdictions where, you know, they're, they talk about does 12 hour rolling blackouts. But before we wrap up, you know, it wouldn't be fair for us as Canadian, Western Canadians to not talk about the federal government a little bit. Yep. And the federal government's 2035 clean electric standard. It is clear based on the current distribution of electricity resources that Alberta and, and especially Saskatchewan will need much more drastic changes to meet these uh, what I call aspirational net zero electricity targets uh, than other provinces like Ontario and uh, and Manitoba and, and Quebec. Uh, Marla, how reali realistic do you think the 2035 target is given the facts on the ground and and the, uh, and the Brendan, please, your, your view too would be appreciated here. Yeah, it, it, great question. We're waiting with bated breath for the clean electricity regulations to drop. We keep hearing that they might come out anytime now. And, and in fact, when we were publishing this report, we had two versions on our desks. One that referred to the proposed clean electricity regulations and the other one that took out the word proposed all through it so that we would be taken um, suddenly for a ride then if, if it came out right. just before we published. Um, it didn't, and we're waiting to hear what exactly the provisions are. We know what the proposed framework looked like. Um, we don't know the extent to which changes have been made since then. And it's, it's pretty typical that some changes are made. It, as it stands, the, the regulations are proposed to say that by 2035, all electricity production across Canada is going to be net zero. And there's a couple of exemptions. Um, anything that was built before or commissioned before 2025 would be allowed to run to its quote unquote prescribed end of life. There's a question of what is that prescribed end of life? It's, it's you know, and I, I anticipate that being a bit of a battle line right there. If, if the federal government says it's eight years versus, you know. If, sure, if it depends on the net present value. You got all kinds of, what was your input cost? What's the cost of capital? What's exactly. the interest rate? Like it's, so yes, an owner may absolutely. say, that, look, end of life is 25 years and the federal government may say, say something else or, or it may come out that that after discussions, the federal government says, it is, you know, 25, who, who knows? We don't know. It, that's a, a big deal. And the other one that's a big deal for Alberta is that um, facilities that are not connected to the regulated grid are exempted. So this would be like small local encapsulated systems. The reason that's important for Alberta is because a ton, like a third, I think maybe Brendan, of our electricity comes from cogeneration by industry. 
Right. Uh, but they are connected right. to the grid right now. And so if this is the case, the easiest thing for them to, to do would be to sever that connection and say, we're just keeping it for ourselves. We're not putting it on the grid anymore. Therefore, we are not having to respond to the clean electricity reg regulations as we understand them to be now. So um, there's, a, there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of what it's going to provide. If it comes out that, yes, it's 2035, um, it's a fairly tight end of life. Um, it's going to be a huge challenge for Alberta and Saskatchewan to keep up. And frankly, I'm not sure that they can. Um, some of the projections that have been done by the Canadian Energy Regulator, a different CER than the Canadian Electricity Regulations, um, they've done that backward modeling that came out a couple of weeks ago that said, well, if we were going to get to net zero by 2035, well, then two thirds of the grid in Alberta and Saskatchewan is going to be wind and solar. Yeah, that, I don't see luck. how that's possible. I just yeah. like I don't see how building it is in that time frame is possible. I don't see how it's possible to do that at this point with sufficient reliability. Batteries exist, but I don't know that batteries are sufficient for the two weeks in winter where where we go into deep freeze. So it's not that I don't like wind and solar. I do. I'm just not convinced that um, they will be able to provide two thirds of our power uh, 12 years from now. Um, so yeah, well, I, you I, know, you look at, and I, I'm stepping outside our our scope here, but you look at Ontario building three gas and hydrogen included though peaker plants, and they've got 95% clean power, <laughs> so they want 100, you know, like yeah. so there really yeah. is there really are some trade offs here. Brendan, is there anything you'd like to add? Like I, this is. Well, again, it's, I, 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 I spent a lot of time on this podcast pounding the federal government, but, um, you know, this seems really obtuse, in my opinion. Yeah, and I, I think, I, I mean, I'm, I'm in agreement with, with Maura. I think, you know, that depending on how this comes out, um, timeframes are going to be really tight. Um, and, and the technology that we need might not totally be where, where we need it to be right now to, to do this in an economical fashion in, in uh, provinces like Alberta and, and Saskatchewan. Um, it's interesting, though, that you brought up uh, Ontario and, and them building some natural gas assets, because um, when we were looking through some of the, the plans that, that Manitoba and Manitoba Hydro are proposing, which aren't complete yet, but they've they've provided kind of their preliminary findings so far. And in all of their their growth scenarios, they've included uh, new thermal assets. So really, uh, assume you know, presumably natural gas assets. Um, sure. And so that that's a province that is you know ninety eight percent clean right now. Could turn off one natural gas plant and be a hundred percent clean. Um, and yet, even in their forecast, they're they've got a provision for for new. Uh, thermal generation. And so I think that just really speaks to the challenge in moving completely towards renewables, um, specifically intermittent renewables and, and kind of some of the reliability issues that, that come along with that when you see a province that's already clean planning to build some some thermal assets. So you know, the, the thing that also this reminds me of is, is to, put, to put in a plug for nuclear. I am a, I am a fan of nuclear energy. It has problems for sure, but there is nothing that doesn't have some sort of trade-offs. The word clean drives me over the top. And and Brendan has unfortunately had to hear this a number of times. Nothing is clean. Right. There is Everything no has a clean. Cost. Yeah. Everything has a cost. And, and I, I get concerned that by using the term clean, we simply say, this is fine. And we don't look at what the problems are that are with it and try to clean those things up too. Um, so it, again, it's not being an apologist for high emissions level, it's saying if we simply call something clean, then psychologically what it does is we say, there's no problems with this. It's clean. It's passed the test rather than saying there are still problems with this and we have to figure out ways to, to fix those problems or clean them up. And uh, nuclear has some advantages. It's reliable. It provides enough power for baseload. It has a really small land footprint. Um, so it doesn't have the impacts on land use and biodiversity that that let's say large scale solar farms or wind farms do. There's a, there's a lot of reasons that I like it, and one of my concerns with the 2035 is I'm not sure that it is um, a timeline that will allow for the uptake of nuclear in the way that I think it should be taken up. And I and I want to make sure that we don't uh, head off at the past the ability to build nuclear because of an arbitrary date that if it had been say three years later we could have done it. 
What a great place to end the conversation, Marla, because we never spoke about nuclear at all until you brought it up now. And I, and I'll, I'll ask you um, and advise, uh, you know, pump our on Thursday. Joe's putting out a, a podcast with our, our one of our fellows, Jackie Hornweg, about the recent uh, additions to the big nuclear fleet that have been announced in Ontario, and um, and you know the quadrupling of the SMRs at uh, at uh, Darlington and. It's so you'll find that interesting because I'm I totally agree. Um, you can't you can't even get you can't think about this amount of power if the power required for the country doubles in the next 15 years. It's not happening with what we have today, without adding nuclear power. So, yeah. um, Brandon, is is there anything you'd like to add? Because but we better wrap her up here. We've kept you people a long time. I'll just say I'm also a fan of nuclear and leave it at that. <laughs> Great. You know, we always ask our, our guests um, what they're reading or streaming besides public policy reports. You got to give us something good here. It can be trashy or it can be a whatever or streaming. Um, but what are you trying to keep your mind out of the out of the things we have to read every day? Because that's what we do for a living. Uh, great question. I'm fiction. I'm fiction all the way. Great. Fiction always wins for me. And right now I'm in the middle of Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. And what's it about? Uh, it's kind of a retelling of David Copperfield set in Appalachia. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's great. Brendan. Yeah. So aside from burying my head in, in electricity and, and uh, environmental stuff, I'm currently in the middle of a book called The Republic of Pirates, which is uh, a uh, historical uh, account of, of piracy in the, uh, in the Caribbean. Great. You guys, it's been fun. And just before we end, and I know that you, you both agree that you know there aren't there are aren't that many think tanks in Canada. Um, there's more think tanks on in uh, J Street in uh, or whatever street it is in DC <laughs> than there are in Canada total. Um, and collaboration amongst us is important um, as we run to up against the challenges of the 21st century. So, uh, from a public policy perspective, thanks for coming on and look forward to further collaboration in the future. Thanks so much, Kelly. Thanks for having us. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgaica slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalman, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.